If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark, the book of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 9. We're continuing our series in Mark. So Mark chapter 9. It's good to have each one of you. I hope you enjoyed a good and uh, uh, warm Christmas. It's only Christmas I can hope that nobody walked away sunburned, um, but it is what it is, right? I made the mistake of complaining about it, saying this doesn't feel like Christmas to uh, Shankar and Karthi, and they said this feels just like Christmas to us from India. Um, so fair enough, that's a good point. Well, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. We're there again this morning, and here we're looking at verses 30 through 50. So I'm going to go ahead and read those. So if you have your Bible, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50, let me read those for us. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him. If a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray together. Father, 
Thank you again for your kindness in gathering us as your people again. Lord, it's an amazing kindness that you have set this up, that we can do this on a weekly basis, that on the first day of every week, we start the week together. But Father, we would know nothing helpful about you had you not been kind enough to reveal yourself in your word. And so, Father, would we be a gathered people around your word this morning? There's no hope if we have to trust in any man's cleverness or any man's aptitude. We have hope because we believe the word of God is true. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit will let your word go to your people. Will you give ears to hear, hearts to accept and believe? And Lord, would you change both the preacher and the listener? We pray that. Only you can do that, Father. I pray that the words that your Son has taught us in this passage will be heard. I pray that he will be heralded and treasured among us. You can do this, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, President, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, if you know President Eisenhower much about him, you know the man is quoted for a lot of things, and he has a lot of good quotes. One of them is this. He said this on leadership. He said, pull a string and it will follow you wherever you wish. Push it and the string goes nowhere at all. Obviously a good a point on leadership. If you want folks to follow, get out in front and give them an example and you'll pull them along. You're behind them telling them where to go. It's like pushing a string. It's not working. Jesus was a very good leader in setting an example. Now, to say that, to describe Jesus' ministry is mainly about Him setting an example would be like describing the sole purpose of the sun in terms of its, it being a good light source. Yes, the sun is a very good light source. In fact, it's the best light source we have. But it does a whole lot more for us than give light. It also is the gravitational center of our planet and gives us more heat and energy than any other source. While Jesus came to offer full atonement for sin and to usher in His kingdom, He also came to be a profound example of what the Christian life was and is. You might call the passage that we're looking at this morning Discipleship 101. Discipleship 101. In this passage, we get an argument. He is going to lay out for us an argument of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, as you're reading through the passage, you may be tempted to take it as a bunch of small vignettes that are just thrown together. It's far from it. It is a very, very focused Argument and it gets us at the core principles of discipleship. So I've summed up the argument for us. I think we have it up here. Three premises. Oh, nice. We've got them great. All right. If you follow premise one, this is an implied premise. If you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you will follow his example. It's just an implied premise. If you follow Jesus, you will. Uh, Follow his example. Premise two. The example of Jesus is to suffer and serve while awaiting a massive reward. 
The example of Jesus is He suffers and serves while awaiting a massive reward. We're going to see that in verses 30 through 32. Therefore, final point of the premise, the conclusion, if you follow Jesus, you will suffer and serve while awaiting a massive reward. And those, that whole conclusion is just laid out in verses 33 through 50. So we're going to walk through those together. So we're going to take... Uh, premise two first, and that is the example of Jesus is to suffer and serve while awaiting a massive reward. Look with me again at verse 30 through 32. They went on their way and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Huh. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They didn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask Him. Now, since about the beginning of chapter 3, all of what we've looked at in Mark has happened in this section of Galilee. So, big picture, here's Jerusalem. Up here, the northern area is what we consider Galilee. That's where you're going to have Nazareth, Capernaum, all those things. Sea of Galilee, all there. Down here is the area of Judea, and that's where Jerusalem is. Jesus spent part of His first year down in Judea, most of the rest of his ministry, up until at least this point, is up in Galilee. John covers parts of the Judean ministry. Most of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first half of all those Gospels, every one of those Gospels turns on Peter's confession. The first, the, all of those are centered up in Galilee. So he's been in Galilee. He's now passing back through and he's heading towards Jerusalem. He is focused. He's focused on his way to Jerusalem. This will be the final Passover. He is focused on the cross. He does not want to have a public ministry right now. He has one aim, and that is to teach the disciples. That's the mode we've now moved into. And so for the second time, within just a few verses, we saw the, ver- the first time in uh, chapter 8, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to be delivered over He's going to suffer and He's going to be killed. And the language is very important. It says here, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is important language because it sets Jesus up as the representative of all of humanity. It says that He's going to be delivered. That's what we call the passive voice. It's what you might call is often called the divine passive. Why does it say it like that, like He's going to be delivered? Well, that's because God Himself is delivering Jesus over. Isaiah 53 says, It was the will of the Father to crush the Son. He's delivered over because the Father delivered Him over. Now, in the first time in chapter 8, he says he's going to be delivered over to the scribes and the priests. But this time it does not say that. It says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the hands of men. So Jesus represents all of humanity. And yet Jesus is being handed over in this picture to all of humanity who all, Every one of us bears responsibility according to the Scriptures for his betrayal and his murder. Now just swallow this. Again, if you've been around Christianity your whole life, this is not a hard thing to swallow. If you're new to this, it will really mess with you. Think of what a central teaching of Christianity is. We believe, this is central, that men, left to their own, men and women, left to their own inclinations, 
are so depraved that when we have the opportunity to hold and be held and adore the God of the universe in flesh, we do not do so. But far worse, not only do we fail to behold and worship Him, we strip Him naked, we beat Him, we spit in His face, nail Him on a cross, and watch Him die. That's how the Bible diagnoses us. At the core of Christianity is the audacious claim that our sin is so perverse that this is the only way we can be reconciled to God. That is, my sin, the ways that I have failed God, are so messed up that the God of the universe has to come hang naked on a cross and bear the wrath of God to pay for it. And that's the only way I have life. That is central to who we are. That is profoundly helpful. Because let me tell you, if you hear that and you can be proud, then you are being ridiculous. There is no place for proud Christianity. Just think of what we have to admit just to believe the Gospel. So for the second time, Jesus uh, tells His disciples that He is going to die and He tells them that they, He is going to rise. And for a second time, they don't get it. <laughs> they have no room for a king who will suffer. Now, on one side, I want you to keep in mind, there's actually nothing wrong with their king logic here. It is fine to not have room for a king that will ultimately suffer. That makes sense. What they were wrong about was the timing and the scope. They thought Jesus was going to be the king over the here and the now. He's going to make this thing happen right here and right now. But realize that's as backwards as when Satan takes Jesus in the wilderness and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, right? It's exactly what Satan said. You can have all the kingdoms of the world. Recall what Jesus says to Peter when Peter tells him, don't do the whole suffer thing. What does he say to Peter? Behind me who? Satan. It's because they're using the exact same logic. Jesus doesn't reject Satan for offering him the opportunity to rule the kingdoms of the world. He rejects him for only offering him just the kingdoms of the world. Jesus will not rule the here and the now only. Jesus will defeat sin and death. He will vastly restructure all of fallen humanity. He's going to reshape every inch every centimeter of creation. He's going to right every wrong, heal every sickness, wipe away every tear, condemn every wicked act, and rebuild a world like you have never imagined and for which you were created and usher in an existence that will blow your mind. Jesus is all about the great. He is all about the great. But do not offer Him great short of suffering. There is no such thing. 
So Jesus says he's going to be killed. And then he says, and after three days, I will rise again. When Jesus rises, everything changes. Because when he is risen, he now stands as the king. And at any moment, he can say, let's do this now. And at that moment, everything changes. Jesus was in for short-term suffering in order to enjoy long-term rewards. Alright, verse 33. And they went to Capernaum. And he was in a house. And he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And they kept silent. <laughs> on the way, they'd, they'd argue with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, Look, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Took a child, put him in the midst of him, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So now Jesus is explaining that if you follow Jesus, you will suffer and serve while awaiting a massive reward. And here he's going to make this point. Jesus came as a servant in order to be exalted. His followers must be servants in order to be exalted or to find greatness. Recall that the Gospel of Peter is actually, uh, the Gospel of Mark is actually Peter's account. He's given a lecture series in Rome, and the uh, secretary for him is Mark. That's why we name it after Mark. So Peter tells us that uh, they, they'd taken a long trip here. So you imagine Peter's remembering this. Mark wouldn't have been there, but Peter would have. He's remembering this, and he's saying, I remember, you know, at some point we'd had this long trip, and he, and he sat us down, and he gathers us all together. And they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Now, i got to give them some credit. They just skipped all the niceties and the, uh, the, the sundries and holier-thou language. Somebody at some point just said, so guys, I think I'm the greatest, what say you? Um, and then they took off and, and, and argued it away. So this is the story. And either way you look at it, Mark's use of juxtaposition here is great. He intentionally places this right on the other side of hearing about how Jesus will suffer. So the God of the universe is talking about being made low, really low, and His followers are discussing, now who among us is the greatest? Again, the problem is not wanting to be great. The problem is they were willing to settle for greatness within their own realm, within their own calculus, by their own means. But kingdom greatness is always found by traveling down the hard road of suffering. The more you serve, the more you suffer. The more you gain. I remember at one point when I was young, I got into an argument with my friends. It might have come to blows over um, which one of us could dunk the best. Um, confession, it was a lowered goal. Um, confession, it was the lowest setting. Confession, we were jumping off of a crate and using a tennis ball because we couldn't hold the basketball in one hand. What a ridiculous argument. We about came to blows over this. Which of us cannot dunk the best. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. Can you imagine if LeBron James would have happened upon our scene? He would have thought, 
Simmer down, boys. Nobody hears Duncan. You guys can't jump over a phone book, right? It's silly. So if I'm Jesus and I'm hearing that, by the way, anytime a preacher starts with, if I'm Jesus, dot, 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 that's trouble, right? But if I'm Jesus and I'm hearing that, that's going to be my response. Like, let me help you out. I was holding together your tongue and your brain and your body while you were having the argument. That's what was going on. None of you is great, right? I stopped thinking about you all for one second. You fall apart. I'm great. You're not, not Jesus. Instead, here's how he deals with it. He, he goes and he picks up a child as an illustration. i got to tell you, this is actually, unfortunately, in our culture, woefully, often woefully misunderstood, especially in children's Bibles. It's usually understood actually the exact opposite is of how it is meant. The point here is not look at how great children are. That is not the point of it. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus picks up a child assuming that everybody around understands how helpless, unhelpful, and vulnerable the child is. In that culture, he is now making a point to a group of men by holding a child because in that culture, only the women took care of children and oftentimes the lowliest of the servants took care of the children. So now you have the great teacher reach over and pick up a child. Now we all think of this picture and we're like, perfect, we've got to get this on the Christmas card. The, you know, the pastor has the, the kid on the knee, right? They look at it and they're disgusted. What are you doing picking up that child? You don't touch children, right? That's the picture. So if you get that, you get the profound nature of what Jesus is saying. When you receive one who is like this, when you receive one who has nothing to offer you in return, who takes and gives nothing back, then you are getting the kingdom calculus. You receive them, says Jesus, and you receive me. Verse 38, John, he's tracking, said to him, Teacher, you know, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us, he's for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Again, all of this is arguing if you follow Jesus, you will suffer and serve while awaiting a massive reward. Followers of Jesus seek to broaden, not narrow, the kingdom. Followers of Jesus seek to broaden, not narrow, the kingdom. I think one of the most profound parts of this is that John connects what Jesus is talking about. When he sees the the child on the knee, John looks at the child on the knee and says, now wait a second, we might have done something wrong here. And John thinks back about another experience that had happened to them. And he says, you know, one day we saw this guy. He was casting out a a demon in the name of Christ. So he's not a fraud. He's not like the frauds listed in Matthew 7 or the sons of Sceva in Acts 19. He's not a fraud. He He was a follower of Jesus. He said, we told him to stop. And what was the justification? Because he was not one of us. John sees the child on the knee thinks of that experience and he says oh wait 
we might not have done the right thing. And Jesus affirms for him, no, you didn't do the right thing. Jesus rebukes them for being too exclusive. I tell you, one of the most dangerous temptations of Christian ministry is not not desiring that the kingdom of God come, but desiring only that the kingdom of God come through us, through our efforts. Instead of being willing to see the kingdom of God come wherever, if you desire that the kingdom of God only come through your efforts, there's trouble. This is why we want to pray every Sunday for another local church in the area. That's not us. We want to do that because we want to pray that God would bring kingdom fruit. We want to do that to remind ourselves that we are not the only witness to the gospel in this area. We want to do it to actually hope and pray as a Christian congregation that God would break out revival in His name elsewhere. It is a major, major deal. The longer I'm part of Christian ministry, the harder this temptation comes. I find so much help that before these guys ever saw Jesus nailed to a cross, He looked at them and warned them that this is not the way He wants His followers to be. Final, verse 42. Whoever causes... So all of this is together. This is so helpful. He goes from that and he says, okay, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Gosh. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, as I'm reading this, please understand this is the words of Jesus. I sat on a plane not long ago with a gentleman and we were talking about the gospel and anyway, cut to the long story short on it. He's telling me that, you know, he's part of church, always gone to church there, etc. etc. And um, but the more we talked, different things weren't adding up, so I'm asking further questions. And uh, and I, I just started with some basics. So do you guys talk about Jesus a lot? Yeah, we talk about Jesus quite a bit, you know, fair amount. Um, Okay, so we're going through different things. Said, but how much do you talk about finally God? To how much do you talk about hell? Oh, we're we're not into hell. Uh, we don't mention that ever. I've been there for however it's like thirty years. I've, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody mention it. As politely as I could tell them, sir, you can't talk about Jesus if you don't talk about hell, because nobody in the Bible talks about Jesus or talks about hell as much as Jesus does, friends. If you want to know and love Jesus, know and love the Jesus of the Bible. Hear Him speak here. This is Jesus. 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. 
where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. So, same logic. If you're going to follow Jesus, then you, you have to follow His example. Followers of Jesus seek to put sin to death. Followers of Jesus seek to put sin to death. Alright, I know it's strong language. If, you're, if you study the Gospels a lot, you're not surprised by this. You're used to this is how Jesus talks. In all honesty, if you haven't studied the Gospels much, maybe you're new to the faith, new to hearing Jesus and what He has to say. This probably sounds very grotesque and jarring language. It is grotesque and it is jarring. But there's one thing you can't accuse it of being and that is unclear. It's incredibly clear. Jesus says that hell is so awful that one should take extraordinary measures to avoid it. That's the clear argument there. No one would dispute that. One should take drastic measures to keep from sinning in order to avoid hell. By the way, let's just stop there. A little housekeeping. You might be a little weirded out here if you're following, following in your Bible because of the way the different translations do this. I don't... Deal with it quickly. If you have the ESV or the NIV, it probably sounded very similar to what I just did. If you have the King James Version, the New King James Version, uh, the I think the Revised Standard even does it this way, you probably have a verse 44 and 46 that the NIV and ESV don't have. Now you're all going, what in the world? Um, right? Um, I bought this Bible. I knew it was cheap. No, I if you have a, the uh, New American Standard or the Holman, you have 44 and 46 in brackets. Well, what's going on here? Well, recall that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Amazingly, amazingly. At some point, you've got you to look this up. It'll blow your mind. There are so many manuscripts still available today of the originals written down. Amazing. All right, so somewhere around the 17th century, actually right around 1611, the, uh, the King James Version was translated. Since the 17th century, archaeology discovered some more manuscripts. So basically, there's a, those manuscripts do not have in there verse 48 repeated as 44 and 46. So if you have a New, a new King James or King James, or an RSV, you read there where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched three times. I found it hard enough to read it one time in the ESV, but you got three times. So basically, the newer ones, the, the earlier ones that were discovered did not have it. The one that the, uh, the King James did have it. And so there's a question, do we keep it or we not keep it? Good question. Um, and so I can say this, I think it's a good idea to keep it. I think it's just a good idea to take it out. I think it would be a good idea to put it in brackets. That's my way of saying I don't think it changes the meaning of it whatsoever. I don't read it three times and go, now I'm confused. I read it and go, okay, it makes sense. So there you go. Uh, that's why some of you have a verse 44 and some have a verse 46. Back to the point at hand. Back to Jesus unplugged. How do we as modern people make sense of these words from Jesus? It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm guessing nobody put that on their Christmas card that you sent out. I mean, let's just admit it. This seems very heavy-handed. It seems excessive to our modern sensibilities. And can't we just move on past all these scare tactics? 
Hell is heavy-handed only when sin is light-footed. Hell is heavy-handed only when sin is light-footed. Don't be surprised that our culture dismisses the notion of hell. It's a logical consequence of dismissing the notion of sin. Listen, a culture's vocabulary is really helpful. In fact, probably the best symptom at diagnosing how the culture thinks. Just their vocabulary. Sin in our modern vocabulary is used to describe rich chocolate cake. Hell is used as a third-rate, bottom-shelf explicative. I don't think this is because somebody sat down and said, you know what, we would like to devalue hell and we would like to devalue sin, so let's just do that. No, it's because our modern culture does not believe that either one of these really exist. Imagine if someone were to exclaim, what the Auschwitz in a public gathering. In all seriousness, I mean in all seriousness, that could cost you your job. But sub in the word for hell, nobody bats an eye. Imagine if your waiter comes to your table and tells you about the chocolate cake for the evening and says it is simply beheading. I'm guessing you're not ordering the chocolate cake. Sub in the word sinful, and we're all intrigued. What's the point? The point is that since we believe that Auschwitz was a real place, and since we know the horror of beheadings, we don't accept this language. But understand, I mean, hear this, this is key. Nobody is as qualified, no human is as qualified to know the horror of hell and the sickness of sin than the Son of God Himself. That's why Jesus doesn't use these in small language. He is dead serious. Hell only looks even-handed when sin looks dreadfully wrong. As long as sin is taken lightly, hell will seem excessive. Jesus argued that hell is so dreadful and so horrific that sin must be defeated at all cost. That is His argument. And I say that to us as a church to think corporately, how can we work to mortify, to put to death sin among us? One small but important step is our essential part of our gathering is the prayer of confession and pardon. You cannot fight an enemy that you are unwilling to acknowledge. The confession and pardon section of our weekly gathering is our corporate admission that the enemy of sin still dwells close at hand. It's our way of admitting our losses for the past week. It's our way of praising God that the ultimate enemy has been defeated by the suffering of Christ on the cross. And it's our way of praying and pleading that God would help us fight sin as we move forward. Check me on this. One of the single best indicators as to the soundness of a Christian gathering is if and how they talk about sin. I'm telling you, it's the quickest and easiest way. Can you imagine Winston Churchill addressing the English people during World War II and not mentioning the German offensive? Of course not. 
Similarly, for a group of believers to gather and not discuss the current battle over sin should be unthinkable. Listen to how Jesus talks. Jesus does not think that your biggest enemy is your finances or your esteem problems or your relationship issues or demons or even Satan. He thinks your biggest enemy and my biggest enemy is sin. But this has to be done both corporately and it has to be done individually. Jesus argues here that we must take drastic measures Obviously, he's not speaking literally about dismembering certain body parts. But the comparison is literal. That is, the calculation actually is not excessive. It would be better to go dismembered into the kingdom of God where nobody stays dismembered long than to enter the judgment of hell. Point being, we must take drastic the battle over sin. So let me just suggest, just if you're like me, you just need a practical step. I, I'm going to challenge you between today and New Year's Day. Get along with God and ask Him to reveal to you your vulnerabilities towards sin. You say, well, I, don't, I don't think I, I have many. Well, plan some extra time. You need it. Right? Uh, and if you have a spouse, sit down and plan a lot of time. You're going to need it. Some of us are prone to a quick temper. Some are prone to covetousness and greed. Some to selfishness. Some to laziness and complacency. Some to drunkenness. Some to sexual sin, sexual fulfillment outside of covenant marriage. You'll know it. And the Spirit of God will reveal it. But pray. God, help me. And pray that you reveal brothers and sisters to help you enlist them in your fight against sin. If you don't know how to talk to a brother or sister about sin, I submit you are in a very vulnerable spot. It's like a soldier with no radio. That is flat dangerous. I also know to some of you right now, I mean quite honest, let's just be honest. This just feels a bit belittling and elementary. Who needs to talk about sin like this? Well, Jesus is very clear that He thinks we need to. Let me warn you and pray that you have ears to hear. If, if you're here and you hear this talk about sin and there's not even a small part of you that's fearful, be concerned. You are in grave danger. Now, if you just reject the Bible right out of hand, say, I don't think it says anything true, well, you're still, you still remain in danger, but I commend you for at least being consistent. But if you believe the Bible, you believe in Jesus, and you think this talk about sin is obsessive, hear Jesus Himself here. It is better to cut off your hand or leg. We must battle sin. That should be a central part of doing church life together. Our our leader, our older brother, our Savior, our Lord looked at us and said, if your hand causes you to stumble, then cut it off. We must follow. Alright, verse 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. I've been trying to use this verse with my doctor. Um, Unfortunately, he knows the Bible pretty well. Um, it says salt is good, sir. Um, but anyway, all right. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. 
But if the salt has lost its saltiness, kind of like butter that's not butter once it's... Okay, I was better not. All right, anyway. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, quick background here. Uh, for purification purposes, for preservation purposes, you use fire and you use salt. And so one of the ways that you would purify the sacrifices in the Levitical system uh, is you used fire to purify them and you used salt to purify them. So to a bunch of Jewish guys, when he starts talking about fire and salt, they're right with him. That's what we have to do with the sacrifices, or actually what the priests have to do with the sacrifices. All right, so what's going on? He is commanding his followers to work together to preserve and purify one another. He's commanding his followers to work together to preserve and purify one another. How do I get that? Well, it gets clear if you go back and think about the context. Those two verses, verse 49 through 50, come right after the section we just talked about where Jesus talks about the need to fight sin. And that section opened up with verse 42. Remember verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones... Now remember, this, he's talking here when he says one of the little ones. He's talking about a follower of Jesus. So whoever causes a follower of Jesus to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I don't need to tell you that that analogy, what that means. It's a really bad thing to be thrown into the sea with a giant boulder attached to your neck. So Jesus says it would be better to go out that way than to deal with the consequences of, helping, of, of causing another person to sin, one of his followers to sin. That's verse 42. Then we get the argument on the necessity to fight sin. Then he comes back and he hits us with this thing about the salting and the purification. So Jesus is warning us not to cause another brother to sin, to take sin seriously. And then He tells us, and you together work together to get purified together and seek peace with one another. Three takeaways. One, every follower of Christ will suffer. Every follower of Christ will suffer. We're all going to be salted, it says. Every trial is hard and difficult. Every trial is also a gift. And it purifies us. It purifies us of sin and false dependencies. Two, no follower of Christ should suffer alone. You were saved into a covenant body. You were saved into a church. You should experience trials with other believers who know you and love you. That's how God uses them to preserve you. And that's how God uses that trial to purify them. Three, if we fail to live at peace with one another, we sacrifice the very gift of the body and the common trials that God has ordained for us. When we fail to live at peace, one of the worst things that happen happens is the instrument God has given to purify us is gone. As we close, I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis rightly the way Lewis rightly sees a lot of things, a connection between our having a kingdom focus and how we treat other people. He effectively describes how a kingdom focus changes how we see people and realize that every person, every single person, is an everlasting image bearer of God. Everlasting. Some 
to the mortal horrors of hell and others to the amazing splendor of the new kingdom. Here's what he says. That wasn't his quote. That was me just getting you ready for the quote. (laughs) There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, whom we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that of that kind. And it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, and no presumption. When you begin to take the idea of eternity seriously, it drastically should change how we consider other people. Ironically, I had chosen to close the service by having you can go ahead and open your Bibles or turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I find this ironic because of the passage that Pastor Charlie read at the beginning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, is actually considered the very first hymn of all of Christendom. Now, while Paul uses it here, it is widely believed that this was a hymn that all of the churches would have used already. Listen to this. Just, just let it sink in for a second. I'm going to read for you, and you can read with me, the very first hymn of any group of Christians. Think about how fitting it is compared to how Jesus just taught His disciples. Verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ... Sorry, this is Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, this is the kingdom calculus, therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.